1649 at St. George's Hill. A ragged band they called the diggers came to show the people's will. They defied the landlords, they defied the law. They were the dispossessed reclaiming what was theirs. We come in peace, they said, to dig and sow. We come to till the earth in common and to make the waste ground grow. This land divided, we shall make whole. And it will be a common treasury for all. The sin of property we do disdain. No man has any right to buy or sell the earth for private gain. By theft and murder, they took the land. Now everywhere walls spring up at their command. They weave their webs to bind us well. Their clergy dazzle us with heaven, or they damn us into hell. I shall not worship the God they serve, the God of greed who feeds the rich while poor folks starve. From men of property, the orders came. They sent their hired guns and troopers to cut down the diggers' claim, burn down their cottages, destroy their farms. They were dispersed, only their legend lingers on. In 1649, at St. George's Hill, that ragged band they called the diggers came to show the people's will. They defied the landlords, they defied the law. They were the dispossessed, reclaiming what was theirs. They came in peace, but the orders came to cut them down. They were dispersed, but still their legend lingers on. Welcome to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. And opening up there with uh, my own rendition on the guitar of um, The Digger's Song by Leon Rosselson, the great English folk singer. And uh, if you're listening, Leon, a uh, shout out to you. And I hope that um, you don't mind that we're lifting your song. I would say that that um, classic number about the great English revolutionary movement of the 1640s, the Diggers, has um, entered the intellectual commons of the human race at this point, and I think I'm within my rights to use it, and I'm sure that Leon Rosselson doesn't mind. So, uh, yeah, that song is actually telling a true story about the Diggers and uh, English peasant revolutionary movement. And a lot of the uh, the words to that song are actually lifted from the Digger Manifesto by Gerard Winstanley, um, penned way back in 1649, as the uh, as the song informs you, in the midst of the the English Civil War or the English Revolution, as it is 
variously known of the the 1640s, which began with the um, execution of the king. Yes, the English actually did it a century and a half before the French did it. Little known fact. Um, And continued on through um, the um, uh, establishment of a republic, which um, pitted the Republicans against the the monarchists. Um, And in the midst of all of this, um, the diggers emerged and began taking back the land from the aristocrats and the oligarchy and reclaiming the, um, uh, the traditional common lands of the peasantry, which had been enclosed and appropriated by the aristocracy. The diggers also called themselves the true levelers, which was a, um, a reference to the, the levelers, which were sort of the, uh, the um, radical proletarian and peasant movement of the English Revolution, which was um, calling for uh, restoration of the traditional rights of the common people and overthrow of the aristocracy, but they were um, manipulated into the camp of the um, leader of the Republican forces, the war criminal Oliver Cromwell, who was attempting to, you know, set himself up as the as the new despot, as it were. Um, And until eventually, of course, following the classic pattern that we've seen over and over throughout history, uh, Cromwell turned on the levelers and crushed them. So um, the diggers weren't having anything of it. They wanted to uh, remain completely independent and believed in a um, a self-organized movement of the peasantry themselves. And they called themselves the true levelers. And... uh, this little episode has got so much to say about um, so much which has ensued in the century since then, and particularly so much about what's going on in the world at the current moment. And uh, this sort of is a, you know, a segue from our, um, uh, our previous episodes here on the Counter Vortex podcast, where we've been looking at the, um, the wave of revolution around the world, particularly since that, uh, that year of 2011, which saw uprisings throughout the Arab world, much of Europe, and even, you could argue, here in the United States with Occupy Wall Street, and the, uh, unfortunately, the retrogression, which has been seen since the, uh, what I would call the, an actual historical revolutionary opening, which took place in the year 2011. Now, um, one of the things which we've seen since then is that um, the word socialism has come back into mainstream discourse. And generally, I think that this is a good thing. What I'm going to be arguing for in this podcast is um, I'm going to be making a case in defense of what has been termed libertarian socialism, which many people today view as an oxymoron or a contradiction in terms. But, in fact, it isn't. I would argue that the only actual form of socialism can be libertarian socialism. And I'm going to be making the case for that over the course of this podcast. But um, let's begin with the fact that, okay, the word socialism, which has been absolutely taboo, absolutely anathema in American politics for many generations, 
certainly, you know, since uh, before the Second World War, before the beginnings of the Cold War, back in, you know, when, when the Socialist Party was an actual force to be reckoned with on the American political landscape with uh, Norman Thomas and Eugene Debs. Um, since those t- since those days, long time ago now, the word socialism has sort of it's been verboten in American politics. And Bernie Sanders has been one of the few people who's on the uh, American you know political scene who has actually had the cojones to call himself a socialist. And now all of a sudden he's got this this young following and all of these uh, you know insurgent Democrats, as it were are, uh, you know, within the Democratic Party, within the left wing of the Democratic Party, all these, you know, youth who are getting mobilized now are once again calling themselves socialists. And uh, I view this generally as a positive thing, but it also has a downside. Now, beginning with the positive thing, well, the positive thing is obvious. Socialism has once again been legitimized as a concept and as something that you can talk about in polite company in, you know, mainstream political discourse in the United States. And I view socialism quite simply as imperative to human survival. The great historical task of destroying capitalism and bringing about a society which is based on meeting human needs, which is fundamentally what socialism is all about, has never been more urgent. First and foremost, because of the ecological imperative. Capitalism is predicated on endless and accelerating growth, which is fast shredding the basic life support systems of the planetary biosphere. This was just made frighteningly clear by the new report, which was released by the United Nations, finding that we are looking at, you know, devastating collapse of the biosphere in a very, very short interval of time. Basically, this new report is finding that we've got until about 2040 to get it together. And beyond that, the planet is not going to be a sustainable place for human life. And by getting it together, that means, you know, calling a halt to the spewing of carbon into the atmosphere, first and foremost. But this is, you know, attendant with um, preserving the remnants of, of forest cover and natural land which still exist on the planet. And I would argue that, you know, I am all for environmental regulations and public oversight of industry. I think that the fact that it's being radically reversed by the Trump administration is a terrifying retrogression. I'm a little bit more skeptical about these um, concepts that the technocrats are trading in right now, you know, so you're trying to make carbon pay its way in the capitalist economy through carbon trading. I'm a lot more skeptical about that. But um, ultimately, I think that you know, any such measures which leave the capitalist system and its fundamental mandate of endless growth intact are going to be holding measures at best, which can perhaps buy the human race some time. But that's about it. Ultimately... If there is going to be any kind of decent future for humanity on this planet, there is going to have to be a public seizure of the means of production on a global scale and a democratic reshaping of the industrial apparatus to meet human needs and ecological ends. This is the only hope 
for the survival of our species. And I consider this to be fairly obvious. So a big part of the, uh, you know, dystopia has been the fact that, you know, the one thing, (laughs) of course, the one thing which actually holds out any hope of a decent future for humanity on this planet is the one thing that you're not allowed to talk about. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. Well, finally, that's beginning to change, and that's definitely a good thing. It's a good thing that finally, at least, you're allowed to talk about socialism. All right, the downside, and there is a downside here, is that I'm afraid that um, the meaning of the word socialism is being dumbed down. Because ultimately, what Bernie Sanders and, uh, you know, his ilk in the left wing of the Democratic Party are talking about, they're not really talking about socialism. What they're talking about is shoring up the remnants of the New Deal. They're talking about, you know, some kind of public oversight of privately owned capitalist industries. And they're talking about some kind of a social safety net to prevent those who have been left behind by the capitalist authority from being thrown to the wolves. That's not the same thing as socialism. Now, again, you know, would I rather live under uh, the New Deal than savage, unregulated capitalism? Yes, I would, but it's not socialism. It's regulated capitalism with a social safety net. And, uh, you know, in Europe, it's called social democracy. Now, in the United States, they never called it social democracy. They called it the New Deal, or they called it liberalism, uh, a word which I try to avoid using because it doesn't have any fixed meaning. The reason that, uh, you know, they call it liberalism in the United States is that, you know, you're not allowed to say social anything in the United States, right? Because of the deeply ingrained, you know, anti-communism and anti-socialism in American political culture. So, uh, you know, you're not allowed to use that word social in (laughs) polite company in the United States. That was even true back in FDR's day. So, and and certainly much more true now, or at least was much more true until very, very recently. So, um, here, you know, they started calling it liberalism with its connotations of, you know, just being forward-thinking. The problem with the word liberalism is that... uh, in much of the rest of the world, in most of Europe, and certainly in Latin America, it means exactly the opposite of what it means here in the United States. I mean, here in the United States, liberalism means what they call social democracy. In Europe, you know, regulated capitalism, some kind of public oversight of industry, a social safety net, etc. cetera. Uh, whereas in much of the rest of the world, there, liberalism means like classic 19th century liberalism where there's no public oversight and you just, uh, you know, have a completely laissez-faire approach to the economy and uh, you let the capitalists do whatever they want to do. And this completely mystical, metaphysical notion of, you know, the hidden hand of the marketplace will just magically take care of everybody. And... Uh, after, you know, the era of um, state interventionism and social democracy and so on, since Reagan and Thatcher, when, uh, you know, the classical 19th century liberalism started to come back into vogue once again, um, they started calling it neoliberalism, which, of course, means the opposite of what people in the United States think of as liberalism. So I try to avoid the word liberalism because it just, you know, gets into a lot of confusion. So I'm going to be um, avoiding that word over the, uh, the course of this rant. 
And I'm going to be drawing a distinction between, on one hand, you know, I'll just say social democracy, which means, you know, a capitalist system which has got some kind of public oversight, and socialism, which means the abolition of capitalism, and a public seizure of the means of production, and running society in the interest of meeting human needs rather than private property, as the fundamental organizing principle of society, meeting human needs rather than meeting the mandates of private property. And it is imperative that this idea survive. So I'm glad that once again, you're able to, uh, you know, talk about socialism in polite company here in the United States. That's great. But uh, we have to um, exploit this opening, as it were, exploit this political and cultural opening in the country right now to actually have a discussion about what socialism actually means. All right. And then uh, another related downside is um, this is a, in terms of the threat that it represents, I think it's still a secondary threat, but it's a more sinister threat. On our last podcast, I was talking about the uh, the run-in that we recently had with followers of a group called the Party for Socialism and Liberation, which actually physically threatened the Syria peace vigil, which we hold every Friday evening in Union Square here in New York City, uh, one of their goons actually, you know, got in our faces and threatened to slug us because, uh, you know, we were daring to protest the brutal dictatorship of Bashar Assad in Syria and daring to protest his, um, you know, massive bombardment of civilian populations in Syria. So this is another threat. Is it just like, you know, idealistic young neophytes? (laughs) Forgive my arrogance if I'm sounding like a, you know, a know-it-all graybeard here. But, uh, you know, that, that, uh, you know, young idealistic uh, neophytes are going to, um, you know, just like they could get um, taken in into this watered-down pseudo-socialism of uh, Bernie Sanders and his ilk and think that that's actually socialism, they could also get taken in by these um, sectarian pseudo-left outfits like the Party for Socialism and Liberation, which support totalitarian regimes, such as that of Bashar Assad in Syria and that of Kim Jong-un in North Korea. And this fellow that we had the little run-in with in Union Square, what was it, three weeks ago now? Um, was actually uh, wearing a pin on um, on his shirt with the uh, the flag of North Korea. So, um, and I, you know, I pointed out before, you know, the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Everybody tells me, oh, don't worry about them. They're just some, you know, harmless marginal wingnuts. Well, these supposed harmless marginal wingnuts are actually the force behind the Answer Coalition, which is really the last standing anti-war coalition which is left in the United States. I mean, you had um, United for Peace and Justice, but they are, uh, they've become extremely moribund. Uh, War Resisters League, uh, you know, my old comrades who I have worked with over the years, and now I'm somewhat on the outs with, 
they're not really a coalition. They're, you know, just merely a, a solitary organization. And uh, when they choose to coalesce with others, unfortunately, sometimes it's for likes of the Answer Coalition, which I greatly take issue with. And, you know, I pointed out before that, um, you know, the Answer Coalition, actually, they're open supporters of Bashar Assad. They actually march in their demonstrations with portraits of the genocidal dictator Bashar Assad. So I don't want to hear any nonsense about how they don't support Bashar Assad. They just oppose U.S. intervention in Syria because that is amply contradicted by the facts. Thank you very much. And, uh, you know, Bashar Assad, you know, has at times called his regime socialist. And it emphatically is not. It is a kleptocratic family dictatorship. And in fact, a lot of what led to the uprising in Syria, which began with pro-democracy protests way back in March of 2011, is that the regime had adopted a neoliberal economic program and was actually, uh, you know, dismantling the social safety net and was actually privatizing industries to, um, you know, new capitalist bosses and was actually moving away from whatever facade of socialism had been, you know, maintained under the um, the Assad family dictatorship, which first came to power with, you know, when Bashar Assad's father, Hafez Assad, had a, a coup d'etat back in, back in 1971. So, you know, it's such perverse irony to be thinking of the Bashar Assad dictatorship as socialist. It's, you know, a savage capitalist kleptocratic state run by a, uh, in, in, in corrupt and nepotistic manner by, you know, a single ruling family, much in the way that the, uh, that the Somozas did in Nicaragua or the Davaliers did in Haiti. So this is pseudo-socialism, which is actually, you know, antithetical to socialism, completely undemocratic regime where there isn't any, you know, popular participation by the masses in the economy, precisely the opposite. And um, in fact, it is a fascistic regime, or I might even want to dispense with the suffix and just call it a fascist regime, because I really believe that it meets all of the litmus tests of fascism. The personality cult around the great leader, the lack of political freedom, the, uh, you know, the escalation to, you know, to genocide, mass disappearance of dissidents, use of poisonous gas, whatever you want, it's all there. And not, you know, it's not just me who, um, you know, looks to uh, the Bashar Assad regime as, a, as an example of fascist, but so do the neo-fascists in this country and in Europe and around the world. And I've pointed out the irony that just like, you know, these supposed leftists of the Party for Socialism and Liberation... <clears throat> which I prefer to call the party for dictatorship and fascism, just like, you know, these, these pseudo-leftists in the PSL are, um, are rallying around the Assad dictatorship. Well, who else was? Oh, yeah, that's right. The neo-Nazis who were marching in, um, in Charlottesville, Virginia uh, last year at that, uh, you know, hate fest that they held down there, which actually saw deadly violence, they were also carrying, uh, you know, banners and shouting slogans in defense of Bashar Assad. And as I pointed out in um, previous episodes of uh, my ranting here on the Counter Vortex podcast, um, there are, you know, just like um, 
Just like Islamist fundamentalists across Europe have sent uh, brigades to fight for ISIS in Syria, and just like, you know, our anarchist friends in Europe have sent brigades to fight for the um, the Rojava Kurds in Syria. Well, similarly, all of these, uh, you know, neo-fascist and, um, and neo-Nazi type, uh, you know, um, conglomerations in Europe have been organizing brigades to fight for Bashar Assad. This is all documented. It's all on my website. Countervortex.org. So um, the particular irony here is um, that these supposed leftists who are in their extremely misguided worldview are rallying around the fascist dictatorship of Bashar Assad um, because they somehow think that it's socialist are making exactly the same mistake as the radical right. I mean, you hear over and over again from uh, all of these alt-right nudniks who hate socialism uh, that Nazism was actually socialist. Because, oh, don't you know that Nazis stood for National Socialist? As if this is some great revelation. Well, yeah, it did. And Nazism adopted socialist rhetoric. And early on, it had a kind of a, um, a populist pose before the populists were, particularly in the brown shirts, were um, betrayed and crushed in the Night of the Long Knives in 1933, I believe it was. But Nazism was not socialist. Nazism was aggressively anti-socialist. It was actually conceived as a pro-capitalist alternative to socialism, which would deflect the populist upsurge in Germany away from socialism into ultranationalism and racism in a form which could actually be recuperated by the elites. And in fact, there was certainly no public or even, you know, state takeover of of industry and the means of production in Germany under Hitler. In fact, just the opposite. He was wheeling and dealing with the Krupps and IG Farben and the Deutsche Bank and the captains of industry and finance. Private industrial combines were actually given a greater role in the economy, and they were actually availed of slave labor in the concentration camps. So this is not socialism. This is, in fact, the polar opposite of socialism. This is as far from socialism as you can possibly get. And if you are being taken in by, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, Nazi stood for National Socialism, then you're a rube. What can I tell you? You just don't know your history and you haven't studied the matter. And, uh, you know, and the irony is that, you know, these, you know, these bitter anti-communists on the alt-right are making, you know, exactly the same mistake that these pseudo-leftists in the uh, in the Party for Socialism and Liberation are making when they actually look to regimes like that of Bashar Assad, fascist regimes like that of Bashar Assad as socialist because they bandy about some socialist rhetoric. So are there any actual socialist countries in the world today that we can actually look to as a model and support? Well, I would argue no. And... <laughs> This is where we get into um, the notion of libertarian socialism and uh, 
what it is and why we have to struggle for it. Or at the very least, you know, keep the idea of it alive. You know, back during the Cold War, when there was actually a socialist bloc, as it was called, or, you know, what was sometimes called by Marxist intellectuals, actually existing socialism, there was um, all of this debate on the left as to whether it was actually socialist or to what degree it was actually socialist or when it ceased being socialist and turned it to something that wasn't. And uh, the first point that I have to make in this regard is that um, totalitarianism and socialism are absolutely antithetical to one another. Because I would argue that, you know, democratic socialism is actually a redundancy. And here I'm drawing a distinction between democratic socialism, that is to say, a socialist system in which there's been a public seizure of the means of production and society is fundamentally organized around meeting human need from social democracy, which implies that capitalism is still intact, but there's some public oversight and regulation and restraint of its most rapacious tendencies, okay? A lot of people treat social democracy and democratic socialism as synonyms. I'm not. I'm drawing a distinction here, okay? So, uh, to me, what, you know, what is fundamental to socialism, if it is actually socialism and not something else pretending to be socialism, is popular participation and popular empowerment in actually running society, which includes the running of the economy and the industrial apparatus. If you haven't got that, then it's not socialism because society is not in control. It's a bunch of self-appointed leaders and bureaucrats who are in control. So that's not socialism. Obviously, you know, I think that these completely totalitarian states, such as that of Stalin and Kim Jong-un and so on, you know, we're not and are not socialist. Again, they're antithetical to socialism. Now, you know, there was all of this debate back in the day as to, you know, when the Soviet Union ceased to be socialist or if it continued to be socialist. Um, to a certain extent, this was, um, you know, just a hair-splitting intellectual discourse. But, you know, on one hand, you had the most retrogressive outfits like um, the Workers' World Party, which is um, the party that the PSL actually emerged from in a faction fight a few years back, which uh, <clears throat> was maintaining that the Soviet Union was actually socialist. And I suppose, you know, the, the Communist Party actually maintained that until finally the Soviet bloc collapsed in 1991. Although I should say that the actual politics of the Communist Party in you know, their actual application in terms of activist organizing um, certainly uh, was not as, as authoritarian and as retrogressive as that of Workers' World. But that's a whole other conversation. Then you had, uh, you know, the Trotskyist position, which was represented here in the United States by the Socialist Workers' Party primarily, which broke from the Communist Party and sided with Trotsky against Stalin. 
And uh, then later on, after the um, Soviet invasion of Hungary in 1956, Workers' World broke from the Socialist Workers' Party and started moving back in a pro-Soviet direction. But the, um, the SWP and the Trotskyists around the world maintained that um, the Soviet Union was a deformed workers' state and that it was still, uh, you know, uh, fundamentally socialist, but that there was um, <clears throat> growing power for a, um, a bureaucratic stratum, which were, um, uh, you know, had too much power and was distorting things. And then you had uh, the position of the unorthodox Marxists and of many of the anarchists, um, in the prior category, the unorthodox Marxist primary theorists of um, this position were um, Ryazanayevskaya and C.L.R. James, who um, held that, in fact, the Soviet Union and China and so on had become state capitalist. And um, that, in fact, you know, they went beyond the Trotskyist in actually arguing that the, uh, that the bureaucracy had actually become a new capitalist class. And Raya Dunayevskaya, I should point out, actually um, served as the private secretary of um, Leon Trotsky after he had broken from Stalin and gone into exile. Uh, but later, in her own thinking, uh, I think that she went beyond Trotsky in her critique of, um, of the Soviet Union and the, and the so-called socialist bloc. And uh, then uh, a similar position was that of uh, the... Um, Yugoslavian dissident, uh, Milovan Gilas, whose uh, theory was that of the new class, who was arguing similarly that the, that the bureaucratic stratum in the socialist states was actually turning into a, um, a new capitalist class. Now, you know, I would argue that, you know, uh, it was actually something of a spectrum. And the more closed and rigid a totalitarian regime was, the less socialist it was. And the more um, democratic it was, the closer it was, at least, to actual socialism. Now, the anarchists argue that, uh, you know, the, um, the socialist element in the Russian Revolution was um, betrayed very, very, very early on with the crushing of the Machnovists in uh, 1921, Nestor Makhno being the uh, kind of who's sort of the Emiliano Zapata of the Ukraine, the great peasant insurrectionist, where, um, you know, just like uh, the diggers back in the day, you know, started organizing uh, the peasantry in Ukraine to, uh, to take back the land and uh, from the oligarchs and actually, you know, running things autonomously. The Machnovists were actually used... But once again, the same story. They were actually used by Lenin and Trotsky to uh, defeat the white Russians. But then later on, uh, the, you know, the Red Army turned on them and crushed them. So the anarchists uh, you know, saw that and also the crushing of the Kronstadt revolt as the turning point in which uh, the Russian Revolution was uh, betrayed. The crushing of the uh, Kronstadt rebellion by um, uh, anarchist elements of the, uh, of the military. In, um, also in, uh, in Russia, also in that same year, 1921. But even after, you know, the so-called socialist bloc continued to establish itself in the coming decades, well, you know, 
what are some of the uh, the last remnants of it which uh, which survive today? You know, you could look at you could look to uh, to Cuba and you could look to North Korea and by some stretch of the imagination you could look to China. Well, I would argue that China is completely 100% state capitalist and perhaps not even state capitalist anymore, but just savage capitalist. You've got these so-called SOEs, state-owned enterprises, which um, remain ostensibly in public hands, but in fact, they're run as capitalist corporations. They're run as, you know, money-making entities, and um, and they're just enriching a a bureaucratic and managerial class, which happens to be ostensibly in the public sector rather than the private sector, but it doesn't really make that much difference. And in any case, there's, there's a growing um, uh, private sector, has been ever since Deng Xiaoping. And uh, in addition to that, you've just got, you know, this completely unregulated sector with the emergence of, you know, illegal factories, ostensibly illegal, where there's, you know, no public oversight or regulation or labor standards or or worker safety standards at all. And, you know, the corrupt authorities are just, you know, sort of um, turning a blind eye to it. So, you know, this is like an utterly, utterly savage capitalist. All right. Uh, you know, Cuba is actually beginning to uh, open up a little bit. Uh, it, I would say that the economy is less and less socialist all the time. But it's still, by and large, you know, in state hands. The economy is still fundamentally in state hands, and it's becoming at least a little bit more democratic. You know, maybe you could argue that um, Cuba might be more towards the socialist end of the spectrum. North Korea, again, you can just forget about it. I mean, it's a completely closed, utterly, utterly, utterly closed, rigid, totalitarian society, probably the most closed totalitarian society on Earth it's basically been run again as a, you know, sort of a private family dictatorship. So to me, you know, it's the exact opposite of socialism. It's really a monarchy and a totalitarian monarchy at that. So, you know, I would argue that the most democratic socialism is also the most socialist socialism and a completely undemocratic socialism is completely not socialism. Like, as in 100% utterly not socialism, but in fact, the opposite of socialism and a monarchy <laughs> in the case of North Korea, a de facto monarchy. And in fact, I would even argue a de facto theocracy where the monarch is held to um, have divine powers. And I would argue, you know, my next thesis here, bringing the argument to its, um, to its conclusion, is that... Um, not only is the most democratic socialism the most socialist socialism, but the most democratic socialism is libertarian socialism. Now, this is held to be, by more and more people, an oxymoron, because the word libertarian has sort of been subject over the past couple of generations to a hostile takeover by the free market right. And that is not where it emerged. Okay, there is um, an outfit that I used to be a member of back when it was around. I guess it's sort of still around in name, shall we say, although it's been dormant in recent years, called the Libertarian Book Club, which was actually an organization which was founded way back in the 1940s by left-wing anarchists, mostly Jews and Italians who had fled fascist Europe during and immediately before the Second World War. 
And um, shortly after the war, I believe in 1947, they um, established the Libertarian Book Club to keep alive the ideas of left-wing anarchism. But at that time, you know, it was the Cold War and McCarthyism and so on. And I don't think that they actually wanted the boogie in public as, you know, while actually calling themselves anarchists. So they actually adopted the word libertarian as something of a euphemism. Now, I don't like euphemism. Um, and to a certain extent, libertarian socialism is a euphemism. But on the other hand, it isn't really, because it's actually, um, in some ways, a more accurate term than anarchism, because anarchism itself has been a word which is subject to lots of abuse. And particularly, anarchy has just sort of been taken as a shorthand for chaos and thuggery, which is emphatically not how we left-wing anarchists view it, or <clears throat> most of us don't view it that way anyway. <laughs> so, uh, but whereas libertarian socialism actually explains what the thing is. Okay, we've already talked about socialism. Now let's talk about libertarianism, uh, which again, you know, um, the word was somewhat taken over by the free market right, beginning with um, Barry Goldwater in the 1960s. But um, it actually emerged from the left, and it actually emerged from the revolutionary anarchist tradition in the 1930s and the 1940s to refer to organizing society without the state. In other words, no mediation between the people, the broad masses of society, and those at the helm of the means of production. Not representative democracy, but direct, organic, popular democracy and not a bureaucratic caste around the vanguard party, which is the Leninist notion of socialism, but the people organized directly from below. And the factories and the industrial apparatus and so on actually run directly by the workers through their own self-organized councils. So this is the most democratic form of socialism, and therefore the most socialist form of socialism, without the opportunity for capitalism to um, slip back in through the co-optation of a managerial or bureaucratic class, because there is no managerial or bureaucratic class. And, uh, you know, this is viewed as utopian by many, and I will acknowledge that, in fact, it is utopian. But, um, there are also concrete examples that we can look to of when such ideals have actually been put into practice. I spoke about the Maknavists, who were the, uh, the peasant revolutionaries in Ukraine during the Russian Revolution, who started taking back the land and organizing society along lines of um, autonomous collectivism. And... Uh, just uh, at around that same time, you also had the original Zapatistas in Mexico, the followers of Emiliano Zapata, principally in the state of Morelos and elsewhere in south-central Mexico, who began taking back the, uh, the plantations from the oligarchy and reclaiming what they saw to be the ancestral rights of the peasantry 
And again, organizing society around autonomous self-governing villages, which had actually reclaimed their lands and had the ability to sustain themselves. And yeah, these are all agrarian models. But uh, there was one shining example, which we uh, libertarian socialists always point to. It didn't last very long, but in fact, it lasted. <laughs> it lasted less than a year. But you had the, um, the shining example of the Spanish anarchists in Catalonia, particularly in the city of Barcelona, between uh, quite precisely between July of 1936 and May of 1937, when not only were the, uh, you know, the estates in the countryside being broken up and the peasants taking back the land and organizing anarchist collectives and autonomous villages, but um, even in the cities in Barcelona, the workers were taking back the factories. And the factories continued under the control of workers' councils to function and to produce after they had been seized from the capitalists and the managers. And, uh, and were actually, they were actually mobilizing the industrial apparatus in Barcelona for the war effort against the fascists. And they were actually, I mean, you can see the pictures in the history books and so on. They're actually building armored vehicles and so on to um, pursue the war effort. If you're familiar with the struggle uh, during uh, 1936 to 1939 in Spain, you'll know that it was kind of a precursor struggle to World War II. It was kind of a test war for World War II, where um, Generalissimo Francisco Franco and his co-conspirators attempted a, um, a fascist coup d'etat, attempted to establish a, um, a fascist dictatorship in Spain, which would be aligned with uh, Hitler and Mussolini and overthrow Spain's troubled democracy at that time. Uh, but the coup was only successful in around half of Spain. And elsewhere in Spain, it was defeated. And, and particularly in Barcelona and Catalonia, in the, um, in the northeast of Spain, it was defeated by the anarchists around the, uh, the CNT FI, which was the uh, National uh, Federación Nacional de Trabajo, the National um, uh, Federation of Workers, the CNT, and the FI, the um, uh, Iberian Anarchist Federation, those were the, the two bodies which um, essentially formed an alliance and actually seized control when the, when, uh, the fascist coup was defeated in Catalonia by a workers' uprising. And they were actually in control of Catalonia for not quite a year, because unfortunately what happened, if you're familiar with the history, what happened in May of 1937 is that finally the, the central government in Madrid, which was still under the control of the, um, of the, of the Republic, the uh, resisting Franco, attempting to keep alive a bourgeois democracy in Spain, finally said, okay, enough is enough with this anarchist experiment in Barcelona. And they sent troops into Catalonia and put down the anarchists and restored capitalism in Spain with the aid, I will point out, of the Soviet Union, because the, uh, the Republican government in, in Madrid was being backed by Russia, by Soviet Russia. The only government on earth which came to the defense of democracy in Spain, I'll point out, apart from Mexico, which had um, uh, very little ability, as you can imagine, to, uh, to help very much, um, 
democracy in Spain was completely betrayed by the Western democracies, by Britain and France and the United States. And in fact, throughout the war, um, Texaco and other U.S. oil companies were selling oil to the bad guys, selling oil to the fascists, to Francisco Franco and the people on his side so and his forces, which were attempting to impose fascism in Spain. But this was during um, uh, the so-called Popular Front period when Stalin was attempting to woo the Western democracies into a popular front against, against fascism and was afraid of revolution. So, uh, ironically, the, uh, uh, the Republican government at the behest of Joseph Stalin, sent troops into, um, into Catalonia to crush the revolution there and restore capitalist rule. And this resulted in a kind of a civil war within the civil war, which um, weakened the anti-fascist ranks, <clears throat> unfortunately. And uh, two years after that, in um, 1939... Francisco Franco and his fascist forces, which were being aggressively backed by, um, by Hitler and Mussolini with military aid and even outright military intervention with, the, with Hitler's Wehrmacht bombing towns, which were held by the Republicans, such as Guernica, immortalized in the famous painting by Pablo Picasso. An atrocity which shocked the world at the time, one of the very first instances of massive aerial bombardment of a civilian population, something which we have witnessed far too many times in the ensuing years. So with the aid of the fascist powers, Franco emerged victorious. And it was immediately after that, of course, in um, September of 1939, that um, Stalin decided to cut his losses and actually entered into a pact with Hitler, precipitating the beginning of the Second World War. So... Um, a great book about this whole episode, something which um, very much informed my thinking about it, is um, Homage to Catalonia by George Orwell, who was actually on the scene. He was actually in Barcelona fighting amongst the, um, the anti-fascist resistance there. Um, and uh, he was not himself an anarchist, mind you. He would have considered himself a democratic socialist, but um, his portrayal in that excellent book, Homage to Catalonia, is very, very sympathetic to the anarchists. And um, if you're not familiar with this history, I strongly urge that you read it. And uh, so anyway, yeah, there actually was such a, um, you know, a shining moment of actual, you know, in an actual industrialized society, not just a, um, an agrarian insurrection, such as that of the Maknavist in the Ukraine or the... Um, or the original Zapatistas in Mexico during the Mexican Revolution of 1919, but a um, actual, you know, industrial mass society being organized along libertarian socialist principles. It actually existed and existed quite successfully in Barcelona for that period from July of 1936 to May of 1937. Now, the fact that it didn't last long... <laughs> uh, <clears throat> and was ultimately crushed, does, I will concede, point to a, um, an inherent weakness of anarchism or libertarian socialism, where, you know, how do you defend yourself against a state if you don't actually have a state? And, you know, like I said, the anarchists actually did have their own militias, and they actually were organized into a, a fighting force, but um, ultimately they were crushed. So uh, this uh, does point to a fundamental contradiction. And to quote, you know, the famous John Lennon song, you may say I'm a dreamer, 
and I'll acknowledge that. But um, ultimately, I see libertarian socialism as the only hope for a decent future for humanity. And I have to, you know, emphasize here that I am not talking about some kind of imminent apocalyptic revolution. I'm not talking about some kind of, you know, great purge in which we're going to, you know, sweep away the old order in one fell swoop. I mean, one of the slogans of um, Buenaventura Duruti, who was one of the uh, the more militant and um, extremist leaders of the Spanish anarchist, was, you know, we carry a new world in our hearts and we are not at all afraid of ruins. <laughs> so, you know, go ahead and destroy the old order. Well, I go along with the first part of that. We carry a new world in our hearts. I don't go along with the second part of it. I am afraid of ruins. You know, if there's going to be, especially given, you know, the ecological imperative, which is much, much clearer today than it was back in the 1930s, there has to be something left for us to fight for. So um, I don't share this um, nihilist fetish for destruction, but I do share the anarchist spirit and the anarchist ethic of intransigently struggling against all authority and what this concretely means in the current world situation is encouraging and fanning the flames of actually existing models of what can be called libertarian socialism wherever it exists. And to me, at the moment, this means supporting the democratic elements of the Syrian revolution, the civil resistance movements in Syria, organized around the local coordination committees, which were the, uh, the decentralized affinity groups, as you might call them, which uh, began to organize the pro-democracy protest in Syria way back in the spring of 2011, and which still exist today. You hear all about the rebels and the jihadists and uh, all these, you know, ruthless armed factions, you hear all too little about the local coordination committees, which continue to exist in Syria today, continue to exist now, pretty much it's down to Idlib, the one last province of Syria, which continues to be controlled by the opposition, where all other authority has collapsed. The local coordination councils are actually running affairs on the ground and are actually organizing their own autonomous governments at the town, village, and community level in Syria and are keeping alive a um, pro-democratic, secular vision, not only for the country's future, not only a vision for the country's future, but an example by actually doing it and because, you know, in many cases, all other authority has collapsed, doing it in a grassroots, democratic, autonomous way. So, yeah, the local coordination committees in Syria and the explicitly anarchist-informed social experiment being put in place by the Syrian Kurds in their um, autonomous zone in the northeast of Syria— which they call Rojava, organizing society along lines of what they call democratic confederalism, where as much as possible, power flows up from below, from local councils at the community and neighborhood level, 
as much as possible, people actually running their own affairs at the intimately local level, at the community level, and to the extent that a, a larger governmental structure is needed, it's one of empowered representatives who are elected from local councils from below and rotating seats so that you don't actually have the, um, the emergence of a, uh, you know, a permanent bureaucratic class um, explicitly influenced by anarchism, particularly by um, the ideas of the late great American anarchist Murray Bookchin, also informed very much by an ecological ethic. Murray Bookchin called his particular um, theory social ecology. And uh, believe me, I've, you know, spoken about it at length, and I acknowledge how complicated things have become in northern Syria. And in order to fight ISIS, which is bent on their extermination, the Rojava Kurds have had to make an alliance with U.S. imperialism. And, uh, you know, this complicates things to a great degree, just as the... Um, the uh, intervention of the great powers ultimately played a very destructive role in Spain in the 1930s. It's playing a very destructive role in Syria today. So, you know, well aware of this. And certainly it's one of the greatest historical ironies <laughs> on the world stage now that the ultra-reactionary Trump administration is actually backing a radical left movement, which is influenced by anarchism in Syria. Happens to be the case. Nobody wants to acknowledge this. You know, the anarchists who are um, here in the United States who are organizing support for the Rojava revolution don't want to acknowledge that, you know, <laughs> their guys in um, guys and gals in um, in Syria that they're supporting, the revolutionary Kurds are actually being backed by the Pentagon and the Trump administration. And similarly, the uh, Pentagon and the Trump administration don't want to upplay the fact that uh, that the forces that they're backing are, are radical leftists who are influenced by anarchism and are considered to be terrorist by Turkey. Although they certainly are not terrorists. In fact, they're anti-terrorist. They've been fighting ISIS. Uh, but um, that's, uh, you know, Turkish anti-Kurdish propaganda. And, um, well, yeah, it's a complicated mess. But um, we understand that the um, historical process moves forward through contradictions. And we should be unafraid of grappling with and facing those contradictions and trying to work our way through them. And, uh, you know, one of the great tragedies of the Syrian revolution is that the... Um, the civil resistance movement of the Arab majority and the, uh, the Rojava revolution of the Kurds has sort of been pitted against one another. But um, I try to do what I can to um, support them both. And then you've got, uh, you know, certainly one of the, one of the models which has um, inspired me and inspired many other anarchists around the world. The most has been that of the, the new Zapatistas in Chiapas, in southernmost Mexico, <clears throat> explicitly taking their inspiration, of course, from the original Zapatistas of Emiliano Zapata during the Mexican Revolution of 1910 to 1919. And on the very, uh, the very day, the very moment that the North American Free Trade Agreement took effect in Mexico on New Year's Day of 1994, the, um, the Zapatistas, which were a self-organized peasant army of Maya indigenous people, um, took up arms, marched out of the jungle, and um, began their revolution and actually seized a lot of territory. A lot of people don't even remember this story today, but they declared that um, NAFTA was going to mean a death sentence for the campesinos and indigenous peoples of Mexico, 
Because once again, in the same story, going all the way back to the diggers in the English Revolution in 1649, it would mean a further expropriation of the lands, the communal, traditional land holdings of the peasantry by the lords of private property and agribusiness. And uh, the Zapatistas actually um, seized back a great deal of land and peasants throughout Chiapas and even elsewhere in southern Mexico, inspired by the Zapatistas back in 1994, started, um, you know, taking over town councils and again, beginning to, you know, organize their own villages along what I would consider to be uh, libertarian municipalist lines or, um, you know, uh, principles of local autonomy and taking back the land from the agribusiness elites and the, and the corrupt oligarchs and redistributing it back to the peasants. And uh, the armed insurrection of the Zapatistas lasted only 10 days because there were, um, immediately, there was a tremendous protest movement which um, mobilized across Mexico against the government's repression of the Zapatistas and calling for negotiations, calling for dialogue. So after 10 days of war back in January of 1994, the, uh, the Zapatistas came to the dialogue table with the government, laid down arms and came to the dialogue table. And uh, the dialogue uh, went forward fitfully and sporadically for um, several years after that. Uh, ultimately, there was never any peace deal, which was, um, which was accepted by the Zapatistas. And they remain in rebellion today. And they've never surrendered their arms. When I say they laid down their arms, I don't mean that they surrendered their arms. They just um, declared that they were um, observing a ceasefire. And that ceasefire is actually held since, I believe it was uh, January 10th of 1994. They haven't actually fired a shot in anger since then, but nor have they surrendered their arms, and more importantly, nor have they surrendered their land. There are some territories which they've lost in the ensuing years, but the Zapatistas actually still control a lot of the, um, of the villages and the territory which came under their control during the uprising in 1994. All of these years later, they still have a, a rebel autonomous zone in Chiapas, which um, the government has been forced to accept because they recognize that the political price of crushing it would be too high. And this, to me, is a tremendous victory. And um, in fact, you know, the democratic opening that we've seen in Mexico over the past 15 years, I would say, is um, due in large part to the, um, the flame that was, you know, lit under the government's backside by the, by the Zapatista rebellion back in 1994, where the government, which was then, back in 1994, Mexico was a one-party dictatorship. And I think that they realized that if they didn't... Um, have some kind of a democratic opening, there could literally be a revolution in the country. Now, that democratic opening, when it finally happened, was, it turned out to be very problematic. You know, like the, like the Zapatista slogan says, la lucha sigue, the struggle continues. You know, <laughs> it's never over. It goes on and on and on. But um, Mexico no longer is a one-party state. And in fact, for better or worse, with the election of um, Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador as Mexico's New president, it looks like the left, for the first time, is coming to power in Mexico. So we'll see how that works out. And uh, not just the Zapatistas, although they are the most 
notorious example, but um, related indigenous movements throughout Latin America. This whole history sort of repeated itself when um, Peru entered into a free trade agreement with the United States in 2009. It similarly sparked an indigenous uprising in the country. I am struggling to try to finish a manuscript about this. Maybe in 2019, I'll actually manage to finish it, <laughs> which will be 10 years after the, um, after the uprising in Peru, where uh, similarly, indigenous peoples in the rainforest began um, to demand that their territorial rights not be usurped in the name of the free trade agreement, started um, taking back the land and... Um, ensuing struggles in the years since then against land grabs for um, mega development projects such as mines and so on in the mountains and the highlands of Peru. Also an inspiring example of um, something which I would argue um, moves in the direction of libertarian socialism. Although none of these movements explicitly call themselves anarchists, I'm going to, um, you know, I'm going to emphasize here. I'm not trying to appropriate them in the name of my ideology. But um, some of them, such as the Rojava Kurds and even the Zapatistas, have acknowledged that they are influenced by anarchism. And all of them, I would argue, are again, they're sort of moving things in the direction of libertarian socialism. And, uh, you know, we could also point to uh, the recent peasant uprisings in China and the uh, recent initiatives to organize independent labor unions in China independent from the uh, completely corrupt state-controlled All-China Workers Federation, and particularly, you know, the rural uprisings where, uh, again, the lands which are, you know, supposedly titled to, uh, you know, peasant collectives back in the Mao era, but in fact have really been taken over by um, corrupt apparats who are, you know, just turning them over into... um, factory zones and real estate development and and whatnot with the peasants completely disenfranchised. Uh, This has also sparked a whole wave of local peasant uprisings in China, particularly the um, industrial belt along the uh, Pacific coast in the south of China um, in recent years. Very little is known about this in the outside world. And also, to me, you know, a, um, a spark of inspiring resistance which we need to, uh, to try to organize solidarity with and encourage. And finally, getting back to, you know, that inspiring year of 2011, which saw the Arab Revolution and saw a wave of protest all over the world, particularly in Europe, but also in places hardly anybody even remembers. You know, there were huge worker protests were actually put down by a very brutal massacre in Kazakhstan, that year. And um, we also saw it come here to the United States with the Occupy Wall Street movement, which, um, you know, I had my own criticisms of Occupy Wall Street in its kind of um, antipathy to uh, political analysis (laughs) and its kind of fuzzy populism. But um, it also represented the emergence of a radically democratic anti-capitalism, which is definitely a very, uh, which was definitely a very, very encouraging tendency. So uh, now again, you know, in the years since then, there's been all of this retrogression all over the world, where certainly, you know, in many countries in the Arab world, the Arab revolution has turned into an absolute abject disaster. Certainly in Syria and in Yemen 
and in Libya, which have descended into war, and in Egypt, where a new dictatorship has been consolidated, and in Bahrain, where the revolutionary movement was crushed and the old dictatorship managed to shore itself up. But in all of these cases, there are still flames, or at least sparks, which are still alive of the original spirit which animated the Arab Revolution of 2011 and which demand our solidarity and support and demand that we do all that we can that these flames or these sparks survive in the hope that one day the flame can spread again and that there can be some kind of reemergence here in the United States of a seriously radical democratic anti-capitalism and that we can begin to get our eye back on the ball. So uh, that's my rant about libertarian socialism and why it's necessary to world survival and why, in spite of everything, we have to fight for it. So uh, tell me what you think. Join us online at um, countervortex.org. Be in touch and rant on you next time. Join the resistance. In 1649 at St. George's Hill A ragged band they called the diggers Came to show the people's will They defied the landlords They defied the law They were the dispossessed Reclaiming what was theirs We come in peace, they said To dig and sow We come to till the earth in common And to make the waste ground grow This land divided We shall make whole And it will be a common treasury for all The sin of property We do disdain No man has any right To buy or sell the earth for private gain By theft and murder They took the land Now everywhere walls spring up at their command They weave their webs To bind us well Their clergy dazzle us with heaven Or they damn us into hell I shall not worship The God they serve The God of greed who feeds the rich While poor folks starve From men of property, the orders came. They sent their hired guns and troopers to cut down the diggers' claim, burn down their cottages, destroy their farms. They were dispersed, only their legend lingers on. In 1649, at St. George's Hill, That ragged band they called the diggers came to show the people's will. They defied the landlords, they defied the law. They were the dispossessed, reclaiming what was theirs. They came in peace, but the orders came to cut them down. They were dispersed, but still their legend lingers on.